What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Cryptocurrency, it's everywhere. Celebrities and sports teams are endorsing it. The Robin Hood generation's trading it with a touch of a button. Some people are making money. Some people are losing money. Some are just stealing money with ransomware attacks on the rise. Some investors are betting the farm. Others are running for the hills. Terrorists, drug lords, sex traffickers, they think they've discovered a money laundering paradise. Proponents say it's going to democratize the globe. Opponents say its carbon footprint will help destroy it first. Some governments are embracing it, some are banning it, and others, like the United States and this podcast, we're, we're still trying to figure it all out. The Securities and Exchange Commission is eyeing regulations. The White House apparently is going to come forward with an executive order soon. The Treasury Department looking at sanctions and money laundering regulations. Congress is holding hearings, sending letters, passing legislation piecemeal. No one seems to have a clear strategy. And you... You're sitting at home, or you're driving in the car, you're taking a walk around the block, and you're just not sure what to believe. Well, welcome to the club. Welcome to Kryptonite. I'm your host, Rich Goldberg. A little bit about me and why I'm launching this podcast. I've worked on domestic policy, and I've worked on national security policy. I've worked for a governor, a congressman, a senator, a president at the National Security Council. My passion is public policy, and the more complicated the issue, the better. So if you're looking to take a plunge into the truly wild west of policymaking, where better to start than right here in cryptocurrency? Just look at the headlines from the last few days alone. Investors fear crypto winter, quote unquote, is coming as Bitcoin falls 50% from record highs. Crypto collapse erases more than a trillion dollars in wealth, forcing a reckoning for everyday investors. SEC scrutinizing crypto firms over interest paying services. A fully digital U.S. dollar? Fed releases study of potential contender to cryptocurrency. White House to enter crypto regulation fray with eye on financial stability. Senator Feinstein asks Treasury, IRS, on illicit traffickers' crypto use. Uh, the list just keeps going. That's just a sample. So here's my proposal to all of you. Let's start a journey together. Let's start from the very beginning and really dive into this. We'll ask basic questions to make sure we fully understand the complete crypto picture. And then we'll start asking tougher and tougher questions from a wide range of guests. We'll talk to technology experts, investors, policymakers, journalists, activists, industry leaders, crypto winners, and crypto losers. 
We will cover it all. The breaking news, the not so breaking news will become a hub for the crypto policy debates that are already raging and more that are coming. If you're a novice on cryptocurrency, no problem. We're going to cover the basics to make sure everyone's on the same page with terminology and concepts. We can't talk about policy until we understand how it all works. You're a pro. You're already a crypto investor. Stick with us. We're going to be diving into some core issues, some core questions that will determine what you do over the next three months, the next three years, maybe the next 30 years. And I'll make you this promise. I'm not going to pretend to know everything because I don't. And I'm guessing neither do you. But this is about asking questions and finding the way to, as close as we can, the right answers. Ready? Let's go. Our first guest on Kryptonite is Eric Budish, the Paul G. McDermott Professor of Economics and Entrepreneurship and Centel Foundation, Robert P. Rouse Faculty Scholar at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and co-director of the Initiative on Global Markets at Chicago Booth. Budish's main area of research is market design, with specific topics studied, including financial markets, matching markets, ticket markets, cryptocurrencies, and incentives for innovation. Budish's research on high-frequency trading and the design of financial exchanges have been widely acclaimed, and his most recent research concerns the economic limitations of Bitcoin and the blockchain. This sounds like the perfect guess for our inaugural episode. Eric, thanks for joining Kryptonite, and congratulations on being our first guest. I'm glad to be with you, and that's that's a, an, an honor and a, a little bit terrifying. So, uh, Eric, your work is obviously at the 500 class level uh, on cryptocurrency and, and the blockchain, and, and I want to get there, but I want to you know, work our way towards some of those advanced concepts, um, make sure we cover the building blocks, uh, no pun intended, uh, for our discussion going forward. So for new listeners here who are not experts in the space, what is cryptocurrency? What is cryptocurrency? Great question. I, I think of what Bitcoin invented as there, there's kind of two components to it. There's a data structure and a novel way of generating trust in that data. Let me go through those two pieces in turn, the, the data structure itself, and then this, this really novel, interesting, but we can de debate the merits form of generating trust. So the, the data itself, you can think of it as like a very fancy Excel spreadsheet. It, it's a, a particular kind of database where a transaction in Bitcoin or in, in, in other cryptocurrencies consists of a, a sender of funds, a receiver of funds, an amount of funds, and a cryptographic signature. So Eric sends Rich one Bitcoin signed by Eric. Now, it wouldn't, in practice, say Eric or say Rich. It would be these, you know, these strings of letters and numbers, but it's, it's basically a a transaction in which one user is sending funds to another user and the transactions are signed using, I would describe it as old school cryptography. So cryptography that was invented in the 1980s or so. Those transactions you can think of as keeping track of balances of currency. So Eric sends Rich a Bitcoin, Rich sends Joe a Bitcoin by aggregating aggregating lots of transactions, you can keep track of who owns how much money. The thing that was novel and really quite ingenious was let, let's compare, let, let's think about what would go wrong if we were keeping, keeping track of transactions amongst ourselves using like a Google document. 
So I, I, the, way, the way I like to teach, teach these concepts to, uh, to my MBA students or to other audiences is let, let's, let's build our way up. So ma- imagine we're, we're keeping track of cryptocurrency transactions on uh, a Google Doc. So Eric sends Rich one Bitcoin signed by Eric. Rich sends Joe three Bitcoins signed by Rich. The, the signatures themselves actually provide like a certain level of security that each of those data entries is valid. But the problem with the Google Doc is like someone could come in and delete stuff. All right, so you wouldn't want to literally use a, a Google Doc to keep track of balances. I, I'm trying to imagine a regular person coming to this conversation and they say, mm-hmm. okay, well, well, I'm using Zelle and QuickPay and you know this kind of stuff. I'm transferring money you know, to different people electronically. A- am I using this technology? Is this different? I mean, I, I see my spreadsheets in, in my bank account of how I'm moving money around. What, what, what's special about this? Oh, great. So, so if I send you money on Zelle, that works really well. That's a very tried and true way of sending money around. It relies on trust in Zelle or it relies on trust in Venmo. We, we usually take that trust for granted because if, if Venmo stole my money, um, I'd have legal recourse and we all at some level trust that uh, that that credible financial institutions aren't going to abscond with our funds, although you know, the, the trust varies, and I, I, I get that. What Bitcoin was trying to invent was a way to send money around without the need for a trusted intermediary. And maybe that's where we, we should start. If, if you have a trusted intermediary like a, a Zelle or a Venmo, and that's good enough for your, for your, for your purposes, in a, in a sense, cryptocurrency doesn't doesn't solve a problem that you have. The, the whole the problem it's trying to solve is generating an ability to in, in its in its first use case in the cryptocurrency use case. The, the problem it was trying to to solve is how to send funds around without the need for a, a trusted intermediary. And it, it came out of some you know, quite justified skepticism of of the financial system. And we can de- debate the financial system's pros and cons, but it doesn't come out of Thin air. And this is this concept of decentralization that that we're we're getting rid of the middlemen. We're getting rid of the financial institution between. This is you and me. Yeah, this is anonymous decentralized trust. That's the that's the phrase I like to use. It's how do we transfer in the in the initial use case of cryptocurrency? How do we transfer value without having to trust, uh, without having to go through a traditional financial institution? Uh, how do we do it in a decentralized way? And I guess I guess you're you're right. You could think of that through the trust dimension. Who are we trusting? And you can also think of it through like a toll taker dimension. Who 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 are we paying? And so the the decentralization is partly about um, changing who we have to trust and rely on, and partly changing who we have to pay. So a lot a lot of righteous indignation about about fees for moving money around, especially if you're trying to move money. Uh, overseas, and that's part of the motivation for for cryptocurrencies. Okay, so in your in your Google spreadsheet that we have, what is the block? What is the blockchain, and and how does it move together? Where is the cryptocurrency functioning on this blockchain? So let's imagine. I, I probably probably hit this in a <laughs> in an order that's sl- slightly confusing. I apologize for that. But let's imagine we're we're using 1980s cryptography to to sign transactions. And we're aggregating transactions on on a Google Doc. 
that's not good enough because I could send money to Rich and Rich might not be totally confident that he's got that money because I could then just delete that transaction from the Google Doc we're all working with. And then suddenly, poof, Rich doesn't have the money anymore. Um, so the, the, the Google Doc isn't going to generate generate decentralized trust in a data set. So what, what Satoshi Nakamoto invented, and it's really quite elaborate and quite ingenious. I'll, I'll describe its limitations too. Uh, but let's 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 go over the invention is this this this, this method for incentivizing uh, a, a really quite remarkable pool of computer power around the world to compete to add transactions to an official record a block of transactions at a time so let me kind of decompose those terms so a block of transactions is it's kind of what it sounds like, like a thousand transactions, each of which is something like Eric sends rich one Bitcoin signed by Eric. Um, the competition to add blocks of transactions to the official record, the, the quote unquote uh, blockchain, is this quite elaborate search for what amounts to like a lucky random number. And just to give you a sense of the scale of this elaborate search for a lucky random number, uh, Bitcoin compute power currently checks about, last I checked, about 150 million trillion random strings of numbers and letters per second. So let me just say that again, 150 wow. million trillion alphanumeric strings per second. And the reason is that you, you check and check and check and check and check. I mean, it's all automated, of course. If you find a, an alphanumeric string that happens to essentially solve a cryptographic riddle that then enables you to add a block of transactions to the official record and claim a reward uh, of newly minted Bitcoin. So the, you've maybe if that's mining, phrase, that's, this mining. is mining. Yeah. That's where, yeah, it was a great marketing term. Like mining Bitcoins is really solving these computational riddles to then add data to the official record, the blockchain, and then get paid with new Bitcoins. That's that's Bitcoin mining. And how, and how but, much, so, so that's the computer power you described. How much time does that take? So the, the tournament, this 150 million trillion computations per second, that that's an outcome that is, it, there's kind of two, two parameters that govern it. One is how much, um, how much money do you get paid for solving solving the tournament uh, for solving the computational riddle and that's currently uh, six and a quarter bitcoins which you know at recent prices is you know worth 200,000 to 250,000 bucks plus some additional fees so let's let's call it a quarter of a million bucks and the the difficulty of the tournament is calibrated so that it, it typically takes about 10 minutes so there's, there's some noise around that because there's, there's some kind of intrinsic randomness to how long it takes to find a lucky random number. But like zooming out, you've got what looks like an elaborate Google Doc, but it's being built one block of a thousand transactions at a time. And the competition for the right to add that block of a thousand transactions is this elaborate compute power search for a lucky random number that's like 150 million trillion checks per second. 
this is like the gold rush. Like we're, we're, we're in like a crypto gold rush where, where everybody's, you know, riding out to the frontier with all their infrastructure to go, to go find something. Yeah. It used to be in the very early days of Bitcoin. You could, you could mine Bitcoin. Lucky land casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha. In my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On, you know, on your office computer. So hobbyists got who got lucky, you know, ended up with, with what now is worth a lot of money. Um, around, I think it was around 2013 or so, uh, the technology um, uh, leapfrogged into, and I, I might have that date wrong. So if, if so, I apologize to your listeners, but the, the current technology that's been in place for, for, for quite a number of years, I, I think since about 2013, is these very specialized chips where the one thing this chip knows how to do in the whole world is to mine Bitcoin. And so your, your my office computer is completely hopeless against, uh, against, against these specialized chips. I, I did a calculation once. If you controlled all of the compute power from all of Amazon Web Services, and that's like a giant fricking business. If you controlled all of Amazon Web Services, you'd still only have a, about 1% of the compute power that's maintaining Bitcoin because the Bitcoin compute power is so specialized. Uh, so you, the, even if you controlled all of AWS, you couldn't actually attack the thing. Talking about value though, right? So to, to put a value on these coins as they're produced, if there's more coins coming as they're being mined and there is some sort of a limit supposedly, as I understand it, to, mm -hmm. to how many coins there can, there can be uh, in the world, you know, in the future, you know, what is the supply constraint on this type of currency? So, so Bitcoin is, and it's built in that there's a limit of, of a, I think it's about 21 million Bitcoins. And that comes from right now, if you mine, if you mine a block, you get six and a quarter new ones, but in a couple of years, that's going to half to three and something. And a couple of years after that, it's going to half to one and a half or so. And Eventually, it'll go, I think by 2140 or so, it goes all the way down to zero. So Bitcoin's got a problem to solve in, in the year 2140, which is it's, it's going to have to find some new way 
uh, to incentivize uh, uh, incentivize miners. But that you know that's that's a hundred plus years from now. So I'm I'm on record on a different podcast saying that by 2140, Bitcoin's value will be zero. But you know by then I'll be long dead. So uh, <laughs> and, and, unless science really really pulls one out for us. So well, I like to break that down. What what, what do you mean by that? How why, why would that happen? How does that happen? What's ingenious about, and then we're, we're fo- this conversation, by the way, is focusing a lot on Bitcoin and in part because I think that that's the right starting place that we can then talk, talk about, about some other technologies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, talk about some other technologies after that, but it's really good to spend a lot of time specifically on Bitcoin first because that's where a lot of the the new ideas come from. There's this novel novel way of generating trust in a data set. That and that the trust relies on this large mass of compute power to maintain this elaborate Google Doc, you know, to maintain this elaborate, uh, this elaborate data structure. And the the reason why why you need the large amount of compute power for trust is that that's a little bit subtle. So it might be worth worth spending a moment there. If the amount of compute power maintaining the trust of a data set was really small, then you or I could overwhelm that compute power and attack the system. And there's a specific attack vector that I'm quite worried about uh, in, in for cryptocurrencies called a 51% attack, which is if you can amass 51% of the compute power maintaining the, the data, maintaining the database for some particular cryptocurrency or some particular other blockchain project, you can use that majority control of the compute power to to manipulate what data gets added to and subtracted from the official record. So if you you control a majority of the compute power, you could, for instance, I could send Rich a thousand Bitcoins if I had them. He, He would send me in return, let's say, $30 $30 million or $40 million of other valuable assets, because that's what a thousand Bitcoins is worth, give or take. And then I could delete that transaction from the official record. So now I have the 30 or $40 million of real assets. And I also have my thousand Bitcoins back. The reason why it's hard to pull that off now is because the, the amount of compute power maintaining Bitcoin is so massive. So to attack the system would would require some serious scale and we can we can kind of debate all that but my my joke about 2140 is is by then there isn't going to be enough incentive to maintain the data and so then actually attacking the system if, if bitcoin's still still kicking it there won't be there won't be enough security to uh to to, to keep attackers at bay yeah you know, by by then it might evolve but that, that that was at least the spirit of my joke Oh, I want to come back to some of these these larger issues because I know you spent a lot of time thinking about them. But just to, to come back to basic, just to make sure we've we've covered our bases on on some of the basic lingo, um, we hear about tokens and we hear about coins. What is the difference? I honestly don't have a, a deep difference between uh, tokens and, and coins. It's a it's, sometimes the phrase token is meant to signify something like an equity ownership in a project um, more akin to a share of stock. But I, I don't, a, a distinction I do think is, is quite fundamental is whether, whether a blockchain is being used solely for sending money around for, or for sending, uh, for sending currency or tokens or coins, whatever, whatever we want to call it around 
uh, or if, if embedded in the blockchain is, are more general use cases. The, the metaphor one of my colleagues used is describing Ethereum, which is like the, the, second, the, the second most prominent uh, blockchain project as you can think of it sort of as a cryptocurrency. I, I could send Rich one Ethereum signed by Eric and kind of in exactly the analogous way we've been discussing with Bitcoin. But it's also in it as a more general purpose computer. So in addition to Eric sends Rich one Ether signed by Eric, you could also write code, write computer code into a transaction that you then add onto the blockchain onto the official record of, of transactions. And that, that becomes a way of maintaining a, a, a universal computer in the sky, if you will, that is commonly viewable by anybody with access to the Ethereum blockchain. And that's, that's pretty cool. It's, a, it's slow, it's expensive, but like it's, it's pretty cool that there's a, a computer in the sky. And I think we're, there's a, a lot of creative energy devoted to trying to figure out what, what, what innovative, creative things can we do with this computer in the sky that we, we couldn't do with, with previous technologies. Two more terms, stable coin and digital fiat. How should we think about the two of those? So stable coin is a cryptocurrency that is designed to, to maintain a value typically of exactly one US dollar. In principle, it could be tied to some other, uh, some other currency other than the US dollar. And the, the use case of stable coins, I think is kind of interesting and telling. To date, a lot of the excitement about blockchain and cryptocurrency relates to this, this computer in the sky metaphor of all of the, the cool things we might be able to do when we don't when we have a, you know, we have shared data, shared computers, we can just build applications directly into this computer in the sky and not have to go through Facebook or Amazon. And that, that's like one thread of excitement around this area. And that sometimes gets labeled with the moniker uh, Web3. That said, if you look at the data to date, most of the usage of cryptocurrencies and blockchains has been financial speculation. It just sort of, it's just facts in the data. It's mostly uh, exchanges, trading, speculation. We can debate whether it's bubble, Ponzi, we can debate all that kind of stuff. When you have a lot of financial speculation and trading and arbitrage in an asset, it's really helpful to have a, you know, have a store of value that's stable. And the trouble with, with Bitcoin and even and Ethereum and some of the other big cryptocurrencies is that their value is extremely volatile. There As this, we have seen in the last few days. Yeah. Oh, man. Yes. Yeah. So, so there's, there's been this natural demand from financial players in, in this world for coins they can keep in crypto land, kind of in the blockchain, if you will, in this computer in the sky. Uh, but that are pegged to the U.S. dollar. So that's created a lot of demand for stable coins. Um, the, the, you've probably also heard the phrase central bank digital currency. And a central bank digital currency would, would also be kind of like a stable coin in that it would be digital value that I, could trans, I can send directly from Eric to Rich without having to go through Venmo worth exactly a dollar. But then we'd be going through, for example, the U.S. Federal Reserve. 
that strikes me as as a better long run bet. And for who who would you trust than trusting, for example, Tether or one of the other uh, crypto only stable coins? But you know, that's just me. I'm you know I'm a tenured professor at an old school university. The, the concept is sort of funny to me as you've explained the mm-hmm. appeal of cryptocurrency uh, for a central bank to step in and have its own digital coin. And we've seen now the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, putting out there some initial ideas of what that could look like. Other countries are looking at it. Does that render other cryptocurrencies irrelevant? Does it sort of upend this concept of having crypto to be decentralized if the central bank is the one pushing it? I think that's a fantastic question. So I think there could be a couple different implications in a couple of different directions. So on whether whether cryptocurrencies themselves become less less useful, I think honestly the jury's still out on whether they're useful in the first place. So a lot of the hope is that cryptocurrencies will eventually be used as a legitimate alternative to the traditional financial system. So sending money from uh, you know, from one relative to another relative. I, I think. I think honestly, if you look at the data, you know, across countries. I mean, if you look at the data, that's not the main use case. But certainly, the existence of a you know, Federal Reserve-backed uh, digital currency that you could also use to send value would throw some water on that on that crypto thesis. I think the other fascinating implication of this discussion about central bank digital currencies is. The, the pressure for a central bank digital currency came from Bitcoin and the rest of crypto land. But one of the main implications will be for traditional financial institutions, you know, traditional, traditional consumer banks, because instead of keeping my cash deposits at a traditional consumer bank, I might keep some of my cash deposits directly with the Fed. And traditional financial institutions are powerful. They got a lot of a, a lot of political clout and lobbying, uh, lobbying power. So that, that I think that's another major factor in the discussion of central bank digital currencies. I'll be very fascinated to see how it all unfolds. Some would say the dollar has already, in effect, become digital. It is a digital currency in many ways. What would be the uniqueness of the digital currency different than how we use dollars today? I think that's a great point. I mean, there, there's sometimes you'll see like hypesters for crypto land saying, well, in the future, everything will be digital and therefore crypto. And I've never, I've always thought that argument's like a little hollow because like the, the present is pretty digital. <laughs> and I, I think what the, what the Fed, um, what the Fed central bank digital currency or what that, what that kind of idea unlocks is I think from the from the consumer's perspective, it, it won't be that different from sending money uh, using a check or using Venmo or Zelle or whatever. It might be a little faster. Uh, you'll be going through a different interface, but like I, I don't I don't think the ordinary consumer will really notice or care that much. It'll have some implications for like cross border. Um, there might be some some other implications. I'm not not thinking of directly at the moment. But yeah, you're you're right. Like the world's already quite quite digitized. I don't we're not exactly uh Fred Flintstone, you know, hauling rocks around. Okay, two more glossary terms, if you will, that I hear a lot and I'm like, what is this? I gotta go look this up. Forking, 
and having, both interesting terms. So forking is related to um, this 51% attack thing that I alluded to earlier. So forking is if, let me think how to, where, where to start. So we're, we're building out this, this blockchain of data. Again, this elaborate computational tournament incentivized with a quarter million bucks per 10 minutes in the case of Bitcoin, uh, building the Bitcoin blockchain a thousand-ish transactions at a time. So one block at a time, roughly one block for 10 minutes. A fork is, let me give, describe the innocuous version of a fork first, and then go into some less innocuous versions. One type of fork is suppose I, you and I solve this computational riddle. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. At just about the same time. So we both try to add a block of transactions at just about the same time to, to the official record. There's now some ambiguity as to what the truth is, right? Because there's the official record with Rich's new block and there's the official record with Eric's new block. Which one's the truth? So, so Satoshi Nakamoto anticipated that issue and said the official record is whatever, whatever blockchain is the longest. So in particular, whichever one got built out again next, that would, that would become the, the official record. So if, if Rich's chain got a second block added to it or a third block added to it before Eric's chain did, boom, Rich's becomes the official record. That moment where there's multiple multiple chains and it's not clear which is the official one. That's one version of a fork that kind of has to happen. It, you know, it's sort of luck of the draw, but it you know, ha happens roughly once every five, 500 to a thousand blocks. That one's pretty innocuous. You, you, you don't notice that as a consumer. Another type of fork is suppose there's a dispute over how to modify some aspect of the code for some cryptocurrency project. Some observers of the cryptocurrency project might say, we're going to go this way. And other observers of the cryptocurrency project might say, we're going to go that way. And they, they could agree or you know, kind of, it's not like anyone's getting into a smoke-filled room, but essentially agree to a, a fork in which, in which the two different branches of that blockchain get built with two different uh, paths going forward. And that happened with uh, Ethereum. There's, there's a couple different versions of Ethereum, one of which is the quote unquote real one, and the other of which was a fork with some different technology choices that the, the influential members of the Ethereum community didn't think were very good. There have been some forks over the year, years within Bitcoin, none of which have really fully taken, you know, some of which have been worth billions of dollars, but not quite the same magnitude as Bitcoin. Um, the, the last type of fork, so this is a long-winded answer, is- well, These are a lot of forks. I mean, there's like a yeah, dinner fork, got, there's a salad you got a fork. Whole, you got a whole dinner set. The yeah. last type of fork's an attack. So let me describe the majority attacks. I think it's really kind of fundamental to thinking about what 
where the risk factors are with this decentralized anonymous trust. Suppose you're chugging along and um, the, the blockchain's chugging along and I, I at three in the afternoon send you, send you a thousand Bitcoins. And then at 310, another block gets added, 320, another block gets added, 330, another block gets added, 340 and so forth. And you're like feeling pretty good. Like, oh, I got sent a thousand Bitcoins. It's now pretty deep into the into this data structure. I'm going to send Eric the $40 million of US Treasury bonds that he just paid for. Suppose I then I'm nefarious and I go back and I actually solve alternative blocks that fork off of that three o'clock PM situation and become a new longest chain in which that thousand Bitcoins doesn't get sent from Eric to Rich, but instead gets sent from Eric to Eric's cousin or you know, from Eric to Eric's wife or something. So now Rich doesn't have the thousand Bitcoins anymore. That's a fork that would be caused by, by an attacker. And an attacker can do that uh, to do that attack with certainty if they have enough compute power. So if they have 51% of the compute power. And I, I'm, I'm quite worried that if, um, if cryptocurrencies become more economically useful, then the scope for attacks like the one I just described will will go up. The incentive to conduct attacks, like I just described, will go up. And that then puts some constraints on how useful it could become in the first place. And the attacker knows where to look for because there's the ledger, because they're 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 following the blocks in the blockchain. Yeah, the attacker, you know, the attacker that would require some some meaningful amount of sophistication. The the attacker, if if the attacker had more compute power than the rest of uh, the rest of the blockchains, so the, the rest you know, the current blockchains running you know, 150 million trillion computations per second. The, la- the last I tried to do some math, it was using about four to six billion dollars of hardware. You know, the, let's call it five billion dollars of hardware. So what that means is that an, an attacker that could get temporary access to 10 billion dollars of hardware could could overwhelm the system and and do, and do double spending attacks. So clearly, the, the cost of yeah, doing that—you're talking about like a like a Russian oligarch or you know so, somebody who who would a state yeah, actor. It could be a state actor. It could be a you know, terrorist. It could be a really eccentric billionaire. I mean, I, who knows? <laughs> it, but yeah, the 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 scope for attacking the system is there. And I guess like it come, kind of bringing it full circle to the confusing econ 101 place where we started. Bitcoin invented this new kind of trust, this very anonymous decentralized trust in a data set. The vulnerability is the trust is only as good as the integrity of the maintainers of that data. So if you can overwhelm the, the maintainers of the data with, with, compute, with compute power, you can kind of take over take over so, and sort of quantum system. computing and that kind of stuff will come oh, into play as well, right? Yeah, qu- quantum computing would be uh, bye-bye Bitcoin. I mean, it would be oh my gosh. Of, of all of the great things you could do with quantum computing, one of the you know, less socially valuable but quite profitable things you could do with it is, is attack Bitcoin. We, we talk about this as being a decentralized, uh, anonymous platform, and this anonymization is, is what draws a lot of people to it. But at the same time, it's not anonymous in some ways. So, so how do we sort of square that circle? Is it anonymous? It's not anonymous because obviously, in the in the 
debates over money laundering and how it's used, I mean, that becomes a central issue, right? I've heard people say, no, 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 the ledger is clear. We can go through the ledger. We'll know exactly who's made transactions. Then you hear people who are you know, big fans of crypto being like, I'm in it because it's anonymous. It's like, well, well, which one is it? I think all, all of the above. I think it's a, a, a great and very confusing uh, question. So on the one hand, every transaction is, and this is for Bitcoin and some of the other most prominent ones. There's some alternatives that are, that are trying to be different in this dimension. But every transaction is publicly recorded. It's like one massive Google Doc of all currency transactions in the whole, in the whole economy. So there's an anonymity to, to the identities in that Google Doc, but like with a little bit of data science, you can figure out who's who and, and, and trace, trace funds. I've seen a lot of research papers that, uh, that do exactly that. The, the other thing that's sort of funny to me about the whole decentralized anonymous, blah, 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 is a decentralized anonymous, but everybody trusts Coinbase. Like so much of the activity goes, and I'm not trying to pick on Coinbase specifically, but so much of the activity actually goes through a relatively small number of crypto exchanges. So instead of, you know, instead of the trusting the traditional financial system, you're instead trusting crypto exchanges, which why that makes sense is beyond me, but but that's that's sort of where we are at the moment. A huge percentage of volume. I saw a research paper recently that estimated it's at least seventy-five percent um, is you know, trading, speculation, exchanges. It's a, a very small percentage of of blockchain volume at the moment, at least, is related to quote unquote real economic use cases. And those real economic use cases are often black market. Actually, they're useful, but but for criminal purposes. Now, we talked a lot about various limits of, of Bitcoin, uh, cryptocurrencies, and the blockchain so far. You had a big 2018 publication entitled The Economic Limits of Bitcoin and the Blockchain. Are there any other economic limits uh, from your research that we have not covered? So the, the argument in that paper is that to, to think of this, of Bitcoin as it generated this m- intellectually fascinating and ingenious new form of trust, anonymous decentralized trust in a data set. The Achilles heel of that trust is the 51% attack. And to try to think through the economics of what does that imply for how expensive this kind of trust is relative to more traditional forms of trust. And and I, I concluded in that paper, it's, it's ingenious, but really expensive. And part of the intuition comes from the, the systems only as secure as the amount of compute power securing it right now. So like you have to refresh the trust every 10 minutes. It's like, it's like a, a crazy expensive uh, brand campaign where like you're only as good as, as whether you've done Super Bowl ads in the last 10 minutes. It's a, just a really expensive form of trust. It's, it's really cool and ingenious. I appreciate it from a computer science perspective, but I was arguing that the trust is intrinsic, intrinsically expensive and that, that places some limits uh, on the usefulness. I think like a, a very positive, uh, a, a, a very likely positive outcome and I'm not saying this is the only positive outcome, but a very likely positive outcome is that the interest in blockchains and the interest in like credible, transparent, simple data structures and 
the interest in you know, computer in the sky puts pressure on more mainstream institutions to make those functions available uh, cheaply and secured by more traditional forms of trust. So the central bank digital currency is one example of that. Uh, putting pressure on financial system fees would be another great example of that. I would love to see fees come down in the financial sector. Um, you could see computer in the sky being something that uh, some of the big cloud compute services offer, maybe in a way that's incredibly trustable. Um, so that that's a that's a positive I'm, I'm I'm hoping for, and there'll probably be lots of other positives we don't anticipate. Who knows? And the technology itself, right behind it, has has a lot of benefits for 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 businesses, for for supply chains, for transaction purposes. Totally. I think I think another thing that this era has done or that this this craze excitement whatever word you want to put around it is just call attention to the value of well-architected databases so i i love to i love to joke like if it was very common a few years ago around when my paper was coming out to say well i don't really believe in bitcoin but i believe in the blockchain that was like a very serious person thing to say you kind of hear it at cocktail parties and I always thought to myself, it's, it's a little silly because if, if you said, I don't believe in Bitcoin, but I believe in the database, people would look at you like you were you know, smoking drugs or something, or I believe in the Excel. But I think that's sort of what's happened is there's been more appreciation of how valuable it is to architect databases that have a very clean structure to them. Um, and that can't be corrupted by a rogue actor within a firm. So if a you know, rogue actor within a, a firm can't go you know, delete stuff to cover their tracks. You know, blockchains are useful in, in that regards. I think, there's, I think that puts a lot of attention and pressure on, on more traditional institutions to, to get better. One of the big marketing themes uh, that we've heard uh, until the last couple of weeks, obviously, was that you know crypto is like the new gold, right? It's not tied to the market fluctuations. Great alternative uh, investment to hedge against instability. Of course, last couple of weeks we see all the headlines: Bitcoin and, and other cryptos falling just as much, right in line with other equities. Does this call into question the notion that crypto is an alternative investment platform that can be disconnected from market instability? Honestly, yes. Maybe a little no, but but a lot of yes. So the idea, I, I think one of the, the, the positive cases for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is that it's a store of value somewhat like gold. So, quote unquote, digital gold, it's got a lot less of a track record than digital gold, but it's got some track record. It's been around for 13 years. It's gotten significant, significant public attention. So it's not nuts to conclude that it'll have value for a long time. And it, it, we, people, reasonable people could disagree, but it's not nuts as a view. But I think ob objectively, it's been quite highly correlated to other financial assets. So so to think of it as a substitute for gold, I'm fine with, it's not my view, but I'm, I think that's a totally coherent view. I think to think of it as like a zero correlation, zero beta hedge to the market, I think that's just kidding yourself. It's, it's objectively just not that. One of my last policy questions, and then we'll get into some of the lightning round uh, uh, before we let you go. Uh, some folks like Rand Paul have put forward the idea of moving off the dollar as a reserve currency and moving to cryptocurrency as the reserve currency. 
good idea, bad idea. What would the implication of that be? I the the, the dollar as the reserve currency has a lot of benefits for the United States. So giving up those benefits doesn't strike me as a particularly good idea. But I, uh, the, the, some of the benefits are one, one of them is called seniorage. It's a, actually particularly this is like econ 101 stuff. It's particularly relevant at the moment. If there's a, a, a criminal in another country with $100,000 of U.S. dollars, $100,000 of, of U.S. cash under a mattress somewhere, and we have 7% inflation, that 7% inflation is, is kind of devaluing uh, that $100,000 under the mattress by 7% a year. And that's, that's an implicit form of revenue for the United States economy. That's called seniorage. It's a, and because most cash, you know, paper currency is held by, is held overseas and often by kind of black market or, or nefarious interests, it's, it's sort of like a, a tax on global, uh, global black market activity that benefits the U.S. economy. So that, that's, that's not the main reason why we want to have the U.S. dollar be the reserve currency, but that's, that's like a, a source of revenue. And then macroeconomists point to lots of reasons why the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency is, is beneficial to the U.S. economy. So I think giving that up for, for literally a cryptocurrency strikes me as not wise, as a, as a bit foolish. But I, I do like the idea of using some of the technological insights that have become more commonplace because of the excitement around cryptocurrency and blockchain using those to design better versions of the digital dollar. So this, this central bank digital currency idea, that strikes me as very positive. So what you're saying is you like blockchain, you just don't like Bitcoin. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's get to the lightning round. You got me, buddy. Yeah, you know, exactly. I, I hear you. I, I may have been one of those people at those cocktail hours. So, you know, I- My, I, my I, father I, was one of those people. So it's, it's good family debates. I'm like, I, I, gotta, I gotta try to come up with a counter argument there. Okay, what we're going to do uh, on every episode is end with a lightning round. Some quick uh, questions. Uh, you have the unfortunate privilege of never having listened to an episode before. So these will be new to you. And it is possible that future guests will research and listen and know it's coming, but you won't. Oh, so geez. this will be as raw and real lightning round as right. we will ever have. I don't, I don't think this, the world wants raw Eric Budish. <laughs> well, here it comes. Okay, okay, here you go. Cryptocurrency. Future or future footnote? Oh, that's a, a, how much time do I get in your lightning rounds? Oh, you got, you got to just say future, future footnote. That's it. Just, Those are the options. Oh, have, of those two future footnote, but you're, you know, you give economists to, but like, but like 2140, 2140, <laughs> by 2140, we're, we're, I, I think it's a fascinating moment. We're in um, historians will study it. Sociologists will study it. Economists will study it. Um, but I, Future is too much. Is it somewhere in between future and future footnote? Opportunity or threat? Uh, I'll go with threat uh, primarily, but there's the, the technologies and opportunity. I've, I'm wor I worry a lot about um, speculation by those who can't afford to lose money. So that if, if there's, I think there's some. I know this is enlightening, but I think there's some probability. This is more like thunder. The thunder always comes. So this is yeah, the, right. The, we remind, reminded me of my kids in the Cars franchise, but uh, Lightning McQueen. So the the, um, the I think there's some probability. I don't want to put a percentage to it 
that we're in the middle of a, a what Robert Schiller calls a endogenous, a naturally occurring Ponzi process. So something, it's not like a very nefarious Ponzi scheme, but there's sort of a Ponzi element to it where each new layer of the pyramid, you got to recruit more dollars into to keep the price inflating. If that's true, then you worry about the last buyers. You just that that happened in 2006 in the U.S. housing market. The last the last round of buyers got totally screwed. Uh, I worry about that that here, and that I think that's one of the economic and social threats that lurk. And there's a lot of opportunities in cool new technology. So both to an investor, long, short, or just stay away. So I'm, I'm intellectually short. I'm involved with a very small um, uh, DeFi project. So that's my, my, my intellectual hedge. And as an investor, I'm neutral. Stay away. More regulation or less needed? Uh, more, more regulation. I think that's an easy one. And the ultimate easy one for you, I'm sure. You've talked about him many times or, or, or her or them. Who is Satoshi? No idea. <laughs> a very a, a very smart computer scientist with some eccentric crypto libertarian views who uh, unleashed a, a phenomenon all right eric budish thank you so much for being our first guest we learned a lot a lot to cover i'm sure some people are going to listen to this a second time uh, uh definitely invite you to but i think we have the building blocks for a for a blockchain you're, discussion you're a, going forward a, a block of blocks you're, it, was, it was really great to be with you i wish you wish you the best of luck and and I'm, I'm i'll look forward to keeping up the conversation great to have eric budish as our first guest a wonderful foundational conversation but many many more to go we have a long journey ahead everyone and if you're as excited as i am i can't wait for our next episode Please help us get the word out. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Most importantly, tell your friends, tell your family, because that's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, I'm Rich Goldberg. This is Kryptonite. Kryptonite.